0: Ready and off we are. May the 10th, 2015, lecture discussion number 197 on the book of Romans. And you can expect, as you can on all such days like this, a special Mother's Day themed sermon on Mother's Day themes, or not. We'll see how it goes. Actually, you already know how it's going to go. Cinco de Stivo did not fall near Sunday. Uh, as you were aware this year, but I did get uh, quite a few little letters and things, and I uh, selected a few out. Uh, I got a nice book from Janet from Oklahoma, telling us uh, things that we know, but still uh, a book that uh, outlined the degradation of doctrinal truths in the cont- contemporary church. So that was very good to to get, and I appreciate that. Janet, uh, and Sharon from Texas uh, mailed me cool stuff as well as sent it. On the internet uh, as well. And here's what she says. Dear Pastor Steve, being over 60 myself, I thought about sending you a sympathy card. But I repented. Since you are such a hot preacher, hot being a relative term, let's keep that in mind, I made you a jalapeno card. I know you thought, you don't think these people exist, and I bring you proof and you still you still don't think. that, she, Anyway, I decided on a Diet Coke for your drink instead of the traditional margarita that goes with the other Cinco celebration. See, we have the Cinco de Stevo and we have the other one that no one seems to know about. I, mine, obviously, is predominant. I assume you like the idea of avoiding the unfortunate downside of Cinco de Mayo. Uh, and she says something in Spanish about... Um, Brain damage, I think. Or is it that, or is that the most obvious of the obvious questions? Seriously, I hope you have the best of birthdays and that the coming year is full of God's even deeper revelations, revelations of himself to you and to, to you, I can't read because my eyes are not good, to you, for you to share with us. Your lectures are like manna. I have to spend time gathering up the basket full, but it sure is nourishing. Blessings, Sharon from Texas. So. I wanted to bring hers, not because it was necessarily bitter and sarcastic like we're used to, but because it is physical, tangible evidence of her existence. There, so take that. Now, the other one that I got uh, was from my lovely wife, and it made me laugh, and I wanted to share it with you. She got me a card. It said this, have an adequate birthday. You open it up, and it says, "This message brought to you by the National Foundation for Lowered Expectations." <laughs> yeah. And you know that that's me, right? And I did. I had an adequate birthday, and that's all I wanted. Now, the final one for today is from uh, uh, Rand uh, from Illinois. Uh, he sent a card with a, uh, uh, obviously a. Mackenzie River, brown bear on the front of it, a grizzly bear. Dear Mr. Chronister, happy Cinco de Stivo. It's all over the world, you know. You can't stop it now. I appreciate your sermons. Your unstated but sometimes hinted at plan is working. <laughs> of course it is. I am increasingly impatient listening to Christless interpretations of scripture. I get the sense that you deliberately cover difficult passages that are often presented by others in a shallow manner. Just to name a few things I've noticed since I've started listening to your lectures. One, a preacher not seeing that go up, you bald head, was a leprosy reference. Two, a preacher making an individual interpretation regarding the clay pots in Romans 9. Three, a preacher missing any kind of spiritual application as to the parable of the talents. I also appreciate your warnings about grabbing your wallet and heading for the door over certain statements made from the pulpit. At first, I thought you were exaggerating. After reading various horror stories in the news, I see that you are trying to protect the flock. Enjoy this picture of a cute, cuddly bear. I'm glad I don't have to worry about them in my woods. Blessings, Rand from Illinois. Thank you, Rand, very much. Once more, uh, you can go ahead and look at his handwriting, submit it for analysis, figure out that I did not write it, and then draw the conclusion that he also exists, like Sharon and Louise and Jennifer and all the rest of them that write us. Thank you, folks. All of you guys that have written, uh, it was... Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't include them all, but I was just very thrilled to get them, as I always am. Okay, let's see. We began last Sunday with the seventh mystery of Romans, chapter 11. It's important to know that there's 11 mysteries, and the seventh is in Romans, chapter 11. Begin to... Start accumulating them, especially in the time that we live in. And, and that mystery is the mystery of the blindness in part, it says. That blindness in part has happened to the nation of Israel. So this seventh mystery is an Israel-based mystery, and it is a blindness Israel. Did I get that right? I yes, forgot the S. Yes. Blindness in part. Don't pass over that in part what that mean but that is the seventh mystery that we're discussing now because we are in Romans 11 and uh, added uh, we added in Romans 11:6 last week and let me repeat it if by grace then it is no longer of works otherwise grace is no longer grace and I said, "Well, that seems pretty self-evident. Like it's a big sure. If if it's if it's grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That is a far more complicated passage than we can even begin to uh, deal with here. But uh, just understand that. That's eleven six of Romans. It's a profound piece of information." Something that we will continue to go over. So, but we moved on from Romans eleven six last week to Romans eleven twenty two. Um, so let me put those on the board for you. If you continue in goodness, now it has in italics in most of your Bibles. If you continue in His goodness, but remember when it's in italics, that means it's not in the text. So if you continue in goodness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Now, noting that the definition of continuing in goodness is not referencing individual salvation—that's what we did last week, as so many um, commentators and teachers insist. If you're, in other words, if you're reading eleven twenty-two of Romans and you think it's about your individual salvation, you're incorrect. Continuing in goodness is not about what you are doing; it's about something else it's in the context of the natural branches versus the gra- and the grafted in branches in other words continuing in goodness otherwise you will be cut off is completely surrounded by grafted in and natural branches the supporting root the lump and the olive tree all of that is 11 1 through 22. So that explains what that means. And so correctly identifying the lump, the root, the olive tree, the natural branches, the wild branches, that's going to, once you recognize that context and what all of those symbols mean, that will lead you to an accurate meaning of the continuing goodness. So that you will not assign it to your individual salvation or somebody else's individual salvation. And, and it, it, those who willfully ignore the contextual terms that precede, continue in goodness, will of course, uh, doing that, willfully ignoring that, is going to lead into uh, to a position that frankly is indefensible. It's not only logically indefensible, but that's why I reread Romans 11.6 again. If it's not, if it's not grace, it's not grace. So that's how we begin. Ultimately, you have to go back to 11.6 with any view you have of continuing in goodness. If you think that somehow you're going to lose your, your status of salvation, then you have rendered grace no longer grace. Romans 11.6. And you would think that Romans 11.6 would govern all the conclusions of Romans 11.22, but it doesn't. On boast by any commentary, you're going to see Romans 11.22 misrepresented. So, get used to it. But I don't want you to fall into that trap. Once again, more often than not, the typical definition or the typical sermon, for lack of a better term, or lecture that you will hear in the contemporary church, uh, the contemporary, or uh, let me put it a different way, not just contemporary, but the monstrous churches, the very large mega churches that we have out there. This typical sermon of those uh, kinds of organizations is... Uh, on 11.22 of Romans is agenda-driven, which means they purposely are negligent of those passages that talk about the olive tree, the natural and the wild branches, the lump and the root. And it is not negligent by accident. It is negligence by intent. And as we all know, the inevitability of the matter is that the predetermined result that's arrived at is the one which yields the most control and the accompanying financial reaping. In other words, what I'm saying is the reason that 1122 of Romans is so often mistaught purposely, negligently, is because it gives the most power and the most financial benefit to the one who does it. Again. Still. Still. And rarely do they look back at Romans 11.6 and and consider that they are inconsistent with it when they do so. If it is of works, it is no longer grace. It's very, very difficult to include that verse when you misrepresent and misteach Romans 11.22. No one gets rich saying, if it is works, it is no longer grace. Anyway, once we traversed those passages in Romans last week, off we went to reestablishing the immaterial property of evil. So, ultimately, what we're doing is getting a definition of evil, an accurate one that is appropriate, that is usable. And I said uh, that... Evil has an immaterial aspect to it, or to put it uh, maybe simpler, evil thoughts are manifested as evil acts. So there aren't any evil acts without evil intent. So if a tree falls down on your car, or let's say, for example, a very nice motorcycle, blue rode up on here, the tree falls down and hits his motorcycle, there's no evil intent That's not an act of evil. That is an event. Evil requires thought, purpose, consideration. Another way to phrase it, evil intent and the evidences of that intent, if you will. So evil acts are the evidences of evil thoughts. Thoughts are immaterial. They are not uh, material. Physical, if you will. I wish to reemphasize that fundamentally evil is non-physical. Evil at its origin is not reducible to atomic particles. So understanding the real or the actual nature of evil, the evil process in its completeness, and there is a physical aspect of evil. Again, evil actions are the manifestations of evil intentions or evil thoughts. So understanding that, for lack of a better description, will be uh, of significant value as we move through Romans 11, and we began it last week, and I'm re-emphasizing it today because I want to get you to where most people go now when we're here. When I start talking to you about evil, knowing what evil is, almost invariably somebody amongst you has already done this, and you can be sure it happened last week. The first thing that happens is the behold of Genesis 322, as it should. Let me uh, let me refresh you. Behold, and I can't say that strong enough. I don't want to jump up and down and yell because I hurt my leg. Pretending I was young, and I have it wrapped as much as I can so that I don't fall down. And I knew that I wasn't young. I'm very well aware that I'm not young, but I disregarded all of my knowledge and pretended otherwise and paid the price for it I attempted to run 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 rhymes with fun I should not I don't have either one capacity for either I, and that's a long story But I can't jump up and down like I want to. I want to say behold in a way that you know that behold, I I say it over and over again, when you see a behold in the Bible, it means something is coming next that you don't understand. Whatever follows a behold, tell yourself, I don't understand it. And that means I have to stop and look at myself and go, This is something really special, and my instincts is to think I can figure it out quickly, and we can't. It might take a lifetime to figure out what comes after the beholds in the Bible. Just one behold. So here's the verse, Genesis 3.22. Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is God saying, this is a statement from God, how loud do you think it was? Who heard him say this? Who was he talking to when he yells this in his voice, if you will, the loud voice of God? Behold, the man has become like one of us. Who's the audience? Tell me. Do you think it's the man and the woman? I have an angelic host out there. Absolutely I do. The man has become like one of us to know good from evil. Notice how I said it, to know good from. I have the, what's called the from position, good from evil. So in an incredible voice, God says the man has become like one of us. Tremendous information there. Obvious question I've asked it many times: Which one of the us is has the man become like? How many uses do I have in us? That's a trick question. How many uses in us? One. That's triunity versus triad, right? Anyway, which one of the uses has the man become like? Why isn't the woman mentioned? Does man mean man and woman, or just man specifically? What does it mean to know good from evil? Is the text stating that the man knew after his trial, after his sentencing, because he goes through a trial, he goes through a sentencing, is it saying that after those of the trial and his sentence that he knows now the difference between good and evil? Most will tell you that's what's happened. The man knew what was good and what was evil after his fall, after his trial, after his sentencing. So then he had the ability to recognize evil And does he now have the ability to assign and correctly label it as evil? And most commentators and scholars have assumed that this declaration from the Godhood Council is a statement of condemnation to the man, or a negative connotation, if you want to look at it that way. In other words, it's, behold, look at the man now. Look at you now. Is that what God is saying here? They say that God has declared here that the man is in a state of understanding that is negative. Does that make sense? The inference being that the man and the woman had no concept of evil prior to their fall and that has now changed. So ask the question, are they right? Do you believe that the man had no understanding of evil prior to the fall? Okay, good. I, I could separate you into two groups. I won't, but it'd be great fun. I need to do it. Let you argue and get... Never mind. See, I submit, as you know, that knowing good from evil is of great value. I think this is the man, behold, behold. Again, go slow here. He Make sure that every angel that he has ever created heard him say that. And that's the audience. The man and the woman already knew what he said, in my view. But he's going to make sure every single angel hears the description that he had. Behold, the man and the woman, if you want to put them together, but he doesn't say that. Behold, the man has become like one of us. Of which angel has it ever been said that that angel has become like one of the us? Behold, the man, if if God said to me, Steve has become like one of us, do I think that's negative? I don't. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil, and he wanted the entire angelic host to know it. How complicated is this event? It's extraordinarily difficult. We're going to have to tear into it now because we're on the subject of knowing good from evil. And I have long taken the position that's, that Adam was well aware of somebody who was evil. How many evil beings do I have at the, before the fall? Billion? Billion? I know that the person that Adam was well aware of, the person of Satan, I've told you that I'm convinced that uh, uh, he not only knew the specifics of Satan's fall, he knew the specifics of Satan's current condition. So you have to have a timeline, do you not? You don't have to, but I recommend it in order to pass the test. That's oh, Never mind. Here is the fall of Adam and Eve. Put them right there, if you will. Where is the fall of Satan? Before or after the fall of Adam and Eve? Well, obviously it is before. So here's Adam, Adam's fall. Uh, if you want to exebound, you're going to have Satan's fall somewhere here. Exactly how long before Adam did Satan fall? I'm saying to you that uh, Adam knew the specifics of that fall and he knew knew the condition of Satan and those whom followed with Satan. After all, Adam is the second to rule over the Eden environment. This time it is an organic environment. When Satan ruled over it, it was a mineral environment. So Adam knew that he is the second to rule. Satan being the first, and both of them knew why Adam was the second to rule. Both of them knew when Adam became the second to rule. So they knew the timing, and they knew the why. And they knew all of it, in my view. So I think it is only logical to conclude, by the way, that Satan had approached Adam prior to Eve. I think that's consistent with the text, certainly consistent with the typology of Matthew four. Anyway, my point—I'm sorry, not the typology—it's the typological event that would be exp, uh, expressed in Matthew four. Anyway, my point is that this behold of Genesis thirty three twenty two should be a warning to us not to speed through the verse. Stop and think and ask, what is God saying here? What is this—the totality of the meaning of this incredible statement—and uh, uh, and so. It's not a simple responsibility for us to embark upon. This is a statement regarding the contrast, which is goodness, and that which is wickedness. And that's where we're at. But again, we're going to have to go back and deal with what it really means and who it was said to and why it was said at that specific time. And God clearly was sending a message to that angelic host, both the ones that did not fall and the ones that did. Currently, and he mentioned this again, let me repeat this so that you can take this on while I go on. He, I wish he had said Adam. He did by saying man, because Adam means man. Behold, Adam has become like one of us. Did he intentionally disregard Eve? Work that out as I keep going. Okay, currently and presently, so both now and in the future. We are going to be and are bombarded with evil. You know it. Look around. Ferocious, relentless, cunning, every day of our lives from every direction will be evil. Can you, can we tell that which is evil from that which is good? Can we tell good from evil? How many of you think that you have, don't raise your hands, never raise your hands here. How many of you, without raising your hands, please don't raise your hand. How many of you think that you have a very good idea as to which is evil and which is good as you go through this life? In other words, how many of you are suckers? How many of us has Satan fooled? The answer to how many of us has Satan fooled is all of us. When evil is at our door, do we know it's evil? And, and I will concede that at no other time in mankind's history has evil been more so disguised as goodness than at this time. And I realize that every post-flood generation has uttered the same lament. And every generation that has uttered it has been correct to do so. Evil is exponential. It, is, it accelerates over time. And evil adjusts. It isn't static. It corrects its mistakes. It reappears in a more pleasant and attractive form. If it is pleasant and if it is attractive, your first suspicion should be that it's evil. That's why I never take my theology or my politics from Hollywood. That's kind of a joke. Thank you, Adina, for laughing a little bit point is, it's the same evil, but the packaging is just uh, far more better. Anyway, being lost today is the will to declare wickedness to be wickedness. Uh, we have a culture in this country today that tells us to embrace and celebrate wicked thinking and vile activities. I remind you, giving you Exhibit A, I remind you recently of the political leadership class in the last political event, screaming from the lectern, asking for God to bless the eugenics philosophy of Margaret Sanger's organization. I can think of no greater example of ignorance as to the character and the goodness of Christ than asking Christ to receive or to sanctify the pure evil that is the Margaret Sanger legacy. That's absolute perfect error. It is impossible to be further from the character of Christ than the one who stood up or the ones who have stood up and said, God bless eugenics. And that's what they said. God bless the killing of the eugenics industry. It's astonishingly. You talk about not knowing good from evil. There is no greater example than that. There's Talk about blindness. That's not blindness in part. That's complete, total darkness. Can't get any more wrong than that. I I'm digressing and starting to rant, aren't I? Where was I? We moved from knowing the immaterial nature of evil. Where did I go next? I said, once you understand that evil is immaterial, evil is not physical, evil is a thought process, it is a purpose, purpose thought process, it is an intention. Once you know that, once you understand that evil is not reducible, it's not a thing in that sense, it's an immaterial Property. Once you know that, then where do you go next? And I said last week to you, what? Was anybody here besides me? No. Well, once you understand the evil is a thought, then the next thing you do, the next place you go, once you've defined evil as a thought, naturally the progression will be that you go to circumcision. You remember that? Did I spell it right? And as you might remember, to oh, let me restate the thesis. Because evil is first a thought process, because evil is a thought process, God commanded Israel to circumcise their infant male children. That's why. And it makes total sense. I know it does, and you know it does now. Okay, you have no idea why it does. I did kind of explain it in the post-game. I'm telling you folks on the Internet that uh, there is a reason to come here besides the buffet. Every now and then I'll explain something that I know that no one got any idea what I was talking about in the postgame. And that, of course, doesn't have any effect at all. But I still do. But it makes total sense. You see, the, the, you got to add to the fact that the when you're discussing evil that you're going right to circumcision. And add to that the the companion to circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? And the companion, naturally, to the Abrahamic covenant sign of circumcision is the uh, entire Levitical sacrificial system. So they're side by side. So it can be said this way, too. Because fundamentally, evil is a mental event. Because evil begins as a mental property. Because evil is a non-physical phenomenon. Because of all of that being the case, God instituted the Israelite sacrificial system. Does that make sense? What's that? That's right. Absolutely correct. We can end right there. Did you hear what he said? He said non-physical and physical. It's absolutely correct. Thus, there exists a deep interconnectivity between the sign of circumcision and the seven-fold cleansing provisions and the five offerings. God instituted that circumcision covenant and those cleansing provisions and the offering system because evil is a mental property. And all of these physical actions, and they're amazing. You start studying the process of circumcising a child, everything that is required uh, from an orthodox rabbinical s- uh, standpoint. Uh, and you begin to evaluate the intricacy and the complexity and the order and the elaborate ceremonial aspects to the s- uh, cleansing provisions and the offering systems. Uh, God took all of that Tremendous amount of detail. And he put it into the fabric of the nation of Israel because of evil. As a consequence of the presence of evil. Now, as learned students of scripture, you know that the book of Leviticus is an extraordinary testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. All of these provisions, all of the ceremony, all of this, uh, all of these little pieces that he placed in there, all of those testify of Jesus Christ. They're all indicators of something that Christ is or something that Christ is doing. The whole function of, of the sole singular purpose of Leviticus is to confirm and reveal Jesus Christ. So when you read Leviticus, think of it as this way. It is a biography, if you will, a bibliography of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Every single word. As you're going through over what fish to eat, uh, what bird, what animal, all of that. The clean and the unclean, all of that. How to sacrifice the goat. Which goat gets what? When? Who's wearing what? Who says what? All of that is about Jesus Christ. Think of it as describing yourself if you want to. Figure out how it is describing Jesus Christ, his redemptive work and the person that he is. The person that he is is God himself in the flesh. That's the purpose. That's the intent. That's the reason Leviticus has been written. No one seems to know that, but you know it. But, all, but for today, I just want you to consider the cause and effect of all of this, or to put it in better terms. Why? Why is he doing it like this? God piled on Israel system upon system. He just heaped it on them, almost incomprehensively, uh, are the are the aspects of the priesthood, and they had to they were required to physically perform them completely, and they're exhausting. The requirements are exhausting, and that's what. That's the point. That's why he did it. He put this unbelievably onerous system in place on purpose. Overwhelming physical responses they had. If you read about the sacrificial system, they killed so many animals. There was blood everywhere. They they had trenches of the blood flowing out from underneath the temple mouth, just blood and blood and blood and animal after animal. They spent all day, hour after hour, and they had to perform it perfectly in the right clothes, saying the right thing over and over and over again. Just unbelievable what they did. The overwhelming physical responses to an unseen mental property. That's what Troy said, and that's absolutely correct. Physical responses to to non-physical mental properties. And those mental properties may or may not have been manifested into seen acts. I know you're evil when you show me you're evil. I cannot read your mind. God, however, does read your mind. He can't stop himself from reading your mind. It's the definition of omniscience. You have never, in your life, nor have I, fooled God. If you think you have fooled God, who have you successfully fooled? You've fooled yourself. Congratulations. Why? Let's go. Go a different direction. Why does somebody, someone, circumcise his infant son? What, what is the purpose of the circumcision of his, of his infant son? Why does someone participate in a cleansing ritual? In other words, you're told circumcise your son. So you take your son to the rabbi, and he pulls out a sharp stone. I'm not in favor, by the way. Never mind. I shouldn't. That's not a good joke. I won't use it. I was. Heading in a completely different direction. I won't mention it at all, other than to say it is an adult circumcision. But anyway, why does somebody circumcise his infant son? What makes him do it? Why does someone participate in a cleansing ritual? For example, the ashes of the red heifer. If you come in contact with the dead body, you are unclean. The priest has to be clean. Yes, what is the reason you're doing it? Why does some come forward with a trespass offering? Or let's just talk about some of the New Testament equivalents, if you will. That may not be correct, but let's talk about them. Why does somebody participate in communion? Why is someone baptized? Why do you go to church? People tell me all the time, I get it all the time. I said, well, so why aren't you coming to church? And they tell me, well, Pastor Chronister, you're not good at this stuff. You know, I'm not interested. You stink, literally and figuratively. And I, You laugh. I'm glad you laugh. But Bill and I, have, we've heard all kinds of things sitting where we sit and standing where we stand. I've had them come up after lectures and going, you are wrong about everything you say. Okay. Thank you. Please come again. I don't think it's possible for me to be wrong about everything I say. I'm going to get lucky somewhere. You know, it's the clock and the squirrel, right? Sooner or later. But people tell me all the time, I don't want to go to church because churches are filled with sinners. And exactly. Once again, that's the point of it all, right? Church attendance, you go to church precisely because churches are filled with sinners. That's why you go. If they weren't filled with sinners, you shouldn't go there. There is no more doctrinally flawed statement than, I don't go to church because those church people are rotten, nasty, vicious, backstabbing hypocrites. You can't get more wrong doctrinally than that. What I mean by that is, are those people vicious, backstabbing hypocrites? Absolutely they are. Nothing wrong about that. That's correct. But we go to church exactly because the church is filled with nasty, backstabbing hypocrites. Of which we are them. Them are us. You're sitting next to a nasty, vicious, backstabbing hypocrite. Maybe not Adina yet, but she's growing. She's going to make it. She's thinking about it. See, you go to church because you recognize it's a recognition of ourselves. We recognize who we are and we follow that recognition. We accompany that by witnessing Something that can be seen. It's a demonstration of what we are recognizing. That's what's at play here, at stake here. Uh, it, the Alcoholic Anonymous organization has got this right. They're profoundly correct. You go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and I have never, as you know, I, I, as my statement is, I've never drank very much alcohol because I never thought it was wise to be simultaneously unattractive and stupid. So, But if you go to one of the meetings, and I've attended them with folks that are there, all of those who come do so as a testimony to the others who come. And they know it. They go because there are alcoholics there and that they're an alcoholic. And they want the people there to know that they know that they're alcoholics and that they themselves are an alcoholic. Everybody knows that everybody knows that everybody's an alcoholic. That's the purpose of the meeting. Churches are the same in some sense. Churches are likewise. It's an admittance. The alcoholics folks know that they're admitting they're alcoholics until physical death and churches again. We're supposed to be like that. All who come to a church are admitting publicly that we are helpless sinners. I'm a sinner. We should all stand up just like alcoholics. Hi, my name is Steve. I'm a sinner. If you don't know that about me, then you should. And you should know that about yourself. If you're sitting in a pew somewhere saying, that pastor up there is some kind of holy man. Isn't he a great man? He's got so much goodness. I've had a pastor tell me that he doesn't sin like me. I've made this comment. I just couldn't believe it. How can you say something that stupid? Of course you sin like me. I sin like you. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all the same. They told me, no, I'm different than you. Your sins are commission. My sins are omission. Meaning that he was, he sometimes walked past a man that needed to be told the truth of salvation and he didn't do it. That's omission. No! Wrong! You just lied! That's commission! And not only have you not fooled me, I hope you haven't fooled yourself, but I suspect he had. All who come to churches are admitting, are recognizing, and are publicly demonstrating that we're coming here because we're filled with sinfulness. And we're deserving a condemnation. But we're not condemned. We instead are saved by grace. And we go, wow, I'm going because I need everybody else to see what I know about myself. It's an internal spiritual belief that is made manifest by a physical act. In this case, assembling alongside others who share this wisdom of themselves and others. Let me read to you 10.24 of Hebrews. Let me find it. And let us... And 25, 10, 24, and 25 of Hebrews. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In other words, let's get together with one another in order to stir up love and good works. What's implied? Not very many much love and not very many good works. So let's get together and try to do something about that. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? So I keep telling you, as this day is coming, we need to get together, and we need to stir up love and good works, because the day's coming, and it could be coming so fast, we won't understand it. It's going to change us. I hope it changes us. but not forsaking the assembly of ourselves, the getting together, knowing who we are and knowing that we are saved. I shouldn't have been saved, but I am. We come together before the Lord with humility. None of us should pretend. None of us should be in any delusion about our own condition. If you ever find yourself saying, Look at that guy. I'm better than him, at least. That's right out of where. That's the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee goes and says, Look at him, I like him. Yeah, you are. And the tax collector says, Have mercy on me. I'm a mess. I told this story many, many times. The the last words of my father, he would wake up and, and it was like he'd, he'd forgotten everything previous as he was dying on his bed. His, he over and over and over again, he would cry out. He was in tremendous physical pain. Curled up in a ball, this great physical specimen that he was once. And he's a terrific athlete, powerful man. He would say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. He said it probably a thousand times before he died. That I heard. Didn't he, Susie? Over and over again. Why do we come and assemble with the hypocrites and the backstabbers and the nasty, vicious, Tax collectors, who is it that you think you are? Do you not know? Can you not tell the difference between what is good and what is evil? I will guarantee you that I don't know a single high school kid that can tell the difference. Now, they're out there. But by and large, they have been deceived by our culture tremendously. It's unbelievably bad. I know it, and you know it. We have a whole generation growing up that can't tell the difference between good and evil. Don't know about themselves. What is the number one thing that this country is good at today? We rank number one. We're last everywhere across the board in the world now. We're down to the bottom in math for sure. Physics, science, science. In fact, we have foreign countries that are better at English than we are now. So, but we're number one somewhere. Where are we? Self-esteem. Boy, we love us some self. We are, we're positive that we're good. We can't tell the difference. Entire generation can't add, can't subtract, can't do anything. But they're sure that they're are fantastic. They've grown up never hearing the truth. That's the church's fault, by the way. Circumcision, as we have discussed, often is an acknowledgement that the mortigenic factor. See, circumcision is about death generation. It is acknowledgement that you know why you die physically. That's why he is circumcising his son, because he knows. Through the man comes the mortigenic, comes the death generation. And he knows that. That Israelite takes that baby on the eighth day to have him circumcised because he knows death generation, death by decay is coming through the man. That's why he does it. It's a physical act of a spiritual truth that he knows, that he believes. And by the way, once you understand how the transfer of physical death occurs, then, then you have to go immediately to the understanding that the woman isn't doesn't have this transfer element to her in the sense that the man does. The woman will be the one through whom will come the God that is the Savior, comes God that is the Savior. And this understanding then that we're helpless to physical death. Mankind may succeed in slowing the rate at which we all decay and die. Listen, I watch for it every day. Neuroregeneration, neurocognitive regeneration. That's on the verge of succeeding. The Chinese, as I mentioned last week, that's the sign of Noah. We're very close to delaying death. Affecting, slowing the rate at which we die. Maybe even reversing the rate but physical death is still going to reign and the only way physical death is ended is a savior has got to intervene one who can bring his life to our death because we have death knowing that we have death and we have death because of sin we have sin and death knowing that about ourselves crying out have mercy on me someone who is dying and is in sin we need a savior We need someone who has the power to end the sin, someone who is pure goodness. And note that the test of the tribulation will be knowing the difference between the one that is good and the one that is evil. How many will not take the mark? How many will take the one that is evil, thinking that he is good, and reject the one that is good, believing that he is evil? Overwhelmingly, the world will make the mistake of choosing good and evil. Whenever you watch television or a movie, say to yourself, I can be fooled by this. Whenever you watch an ad on TV, recognize that they think you're stupid. That's how they make their money. I've gotten to the place now when I get a phone call from one of these organizations asking me for money, I automatically say, this person thinks I'm stupid. And so what do I do? I reach their expectations. I act like I'm stupid, and and wow, do they reveal what they think of me in a hurry. Try it. It's great fun. What's that? Yes, but but it works amazingly. As soon as you you understand that they think that I could buy, they think they called me somebody from a, a stock brokerage, called me and said, how much money do you have to invest in stocks? As you know, the stock market is doing really well. And I said, I have a lot of money to invest in stocks. I have lots of money. Now my, that's a relative term. What I say is a lot of money is $20. I have a lot of it. I said it's amazing. I got to lay it laying around the house. I need to do something with this. And so, what, is it, what does he think I am now? He thinks I'm an idiot. Well, how much money do you have? I said I got so much. I can't even imagine how much I got. Twenty dollars. But not him. He thinks so. Which stocks do you recommend I buy? The one that the government is supporting, or the one that the government is supporting? That's what I asked him. And he went, well, no, there's lots of stocks you should buy. Well, I'd like to buy the ones that the government has also bought. Those are my favorites. Which one are those? So we had a discussion, and he didn't, for a while there, he was concerned that I may not be stupid, but that went away quickly. He saw that he could get a hold of all this money that I had, all $20. Finally, he asked me, how much money are you willing to invest? I said, well, half of what I've got. (laughs) <laughs> and he was not happy when I told him that was ten dollars. Anyway. He has since called back. We're getting to know each other. He just doesn't remember it's me. Anyway, this is the exact test determining who's good and who's evil, knowing the difference between good and evil in the tribulation is the exact test of Matthew twelve, twenty two through twenty four. The Pharisees uh were there and the people were there and the people saw and heard what Christ said and they screamed out that Christ was pure good. This is pure good. This is the son of David. And the Pharisees did the opposite. They said, no, this is Satan. Isaiah 520. Woe to those who cannot tell good from evil. Who do not know the difference, who call good evil and evil good. Ask yourself every day, am I looking at something that's evil and calling it good? Am I looking at something that's good and calling it evil? Again, who in the world would ask God to bless the extinguishing of children? Who is that far gone? Also, notice the sacrificial system and circumcision are blood-based systems, predominantly, overwhelmingly blood-based. Circumcision, as you know, in Exodus 4.26, Zipporah screams out at Moses, You are a husband of blood. Circumcision is about blood. You are a husband of blood because of circumcision. Leviticus is all about blood everywhere. It's just not, it's a, it should all be in red. It's so much blood in Leviticus. But the reason is given in Leviticus seventeen eleven for that. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Seventeen fourteen of Leviticus. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Blood has life. Blood is identified with life. Blood has atonement value, atoning value. Blood is identified with two things, uh, forgiveness and life. And anyone who doesn't know that, anyone who doesn't know that blood and life and atonement is, is the purposes. that To repeat it again, blood has two purposes. Life is the blood. Atonement is the blood. Anyone who doesn't hold those truths sacred will be cut off. Leviticus 17.14 When we have the blood, see, it's not just any blood, it is the blood, because everything in Leviticus is about Christ. When we have the blood, Christ's blood, we have life and we have atonement. God has chosen blood as his symbol for eternal life and forgiveness for sin. That's his symbol. And thus we have the great mystery of blood as it pertains to life. Somehow, blood explains life. So you want the answers to life? Where do you look as the musicians come forward? That's you, Dana. You have questions about life? You want to know about life? You want to know how it works? Well, God's symbol for life is blood. So what should we be? What will we be next week? We're going to be Experts in blood. We have to know what blood is. Now, there's a medical evaluation of blood, and that's going to be very valuable to us. What blood does, how blood works, how he designed it. It is a symbol of life, and it is a symbol of atonement. And you must hold those truths sacred, or you will be cut off. That's what he said. Next week, that's where we'll be. Let us rise and be dismissed.